Hello, and welcome to A Couple of Europhiles, where we discuss cultural realities and dissonance. And today, we're going to discuss the changing of the guard in European politics. So, Francis, let's, uh, let's start with the French. Let's start with the French frontrunners. Yeah, generally speaking, France is gearing up for an election. It's probably the first one coming up. And as usual, we have a lot of noise in the press around, you know, who can win and whether Marine Le Pen is going to be a, a contender and so forth. In the recent elections, the regional elections, she didn't win a single region in spite of the fact she was expected to win six. And it looks like Les Républicains are gaining some strength back. They got completely hammered in the last presidential election because Nicolas Sarkozy was deemed to be somewhat corrupt and had to go to court. And François Fillon was involved in a scandal just before the election, so they faded away. And Macron, uh, with his new party, Renew Europe party, uh, was able to, to sweep the elections. Now the Republicans are going to make a, a serious pitch at gaining more traction on the center-right. But I believe they're going to be taking votes more from Le Pen than from Macron. As always in French politics, everybody votes for whoever they want to win the election in the first round, and then they vote against whoever they don't want to win the election in the second round. It looks at the moment, the polls are saying that Macron and Le Pen are likely to be the two contenders that pass through to the second round, and it looks like Macron will crush Le Pen again in the second round, although he is going to have a lot less votes than he had before in the first round. So what about um, Barnier? He was, uh, he played the saint in the Brexit negotiations. Yeah, I mean, what a saint. Uh, the man has the patience of St. Francis, uh, my own namesake. <laughs> but Barnier is actually one of the people who are trying to make a pitch to revive the uh, Republican Party, that's the center-right party in France. Barnier, while he has a lot of name recognition and credibility throughout Europe, he doesn't have that much in France at the regional party level because there are a lot of serious contenders who are already governors of the various regions who have actual governing experience, whereas Barnier has never actually run anything because he's been a Eurocrat all this time. So while everybody appreciates that he's a very smart guy and, and has impeccable European credentials, he's unlikely to win anything in the presidential race, but he's going to liven it up. What about Germany? What about Merkel's successor? She just did her, played her swan song in, uh, in America, didn't she? Yeah, Merkel has been, is obviously the, the eminence grise in Europe. She's been there the longest. She's been phenomenally successful. When she speaks, literally everybody listens. And she has been quietly building consensus for over 16 years in power, which is longer than everybody else. She is retiring, in, and the new chancellor elections, the Bundestag elections, are likely to happen soon in uh, September, October more or less congruent with the French. So in Germany, it's kind of an interesting horse race. The candidates are Olaf Scholz from the SPD, who is currently the finance minister and is considered to be a pretty good finance minister. But the SPD has lost a lot of credibility because of its coalition with the CDU and Merkel. They're not going to be viewed as a serious change. Annalisa Baerbock uh, is the Green Party candidate. And she was 
uh, very briefly the front runner until she said some stupid things and now is uh, has fallen back somewhat. The AFD, that's the far-right German party, has lost a lot of support. They've now actually had genuine neo-Nazis join the party and uh, they're going to evaporate because nobody's going to vote for them. The CDU candidacy, which was basically who is going to be Merkel's successor in her own party, has had some interesting twists and turns. Merkel's preferred candidate was a woman named Annalisa Kramp-Karrenbauer, and she basically then withdrew because she couldn't handle the pressure of actually running for chancellor. So the competition went between uh, Armin Lasche, who is the minister-president of Nordrhein-Westfalen, which is the most populous German state, and uh, Markus Söder, who is the head of the Bavarian state. Uh, Markus Söder has a lot more charisma than Armin Laschet, but Laschet won because he's more, more of a politician uh, within the party, and Söder is representing the CSU rather than the CDU, and, you know, the Bavarians always kind of get sidelined, although he is much more popular. So the, the big question there is going to be whether the CDU-CSU made the right choice in um, electing Armin, uh, Armin as uh, the candidate, because he more than likely will win less votes than uh, Söder would have won. But uh, we'll see. And then, as always, the Germans are going to end up requiring a coalition. And the uh, CDU are hoping to be able to do that with the FDP. And for sure, no one's going to go with the AFD. And we'll see what happens. And I think the green lady is also going to get frozen out. But uh, the CDU has taken a lot of the uh, green policies that make sense uh, on climate change to heart. So they've actually become more green themselves, especially as a result of the recent floods. So it's all a, an open horse race. At the moment, the betting says that uh, Armin Lachey is going to win, but we don't really know. And if he does win, he will not have anywhere near the credibility and clout that Merkel had uh, on the European and world stage. He's going to have to develop that himself uh, slowly because he doesn't have any experience in the global context. No dramatic changes in France or Germany expected? You know, if Macron loses, that would be pretty dramatic. Macron is actually a pretty good chance, a pretty good president of France, uh, but he's not viewed that way in his own country. He's viewed as arrogant and out of touch. He has now started a, a big tour of France uh, where he's shaking a lot of hands and kissing a lot of babies and trying to establish his populist credentials with the people. What he's doing is not bad for their economy, but they don't like to have ivory tower guys and maybe they've also had a little bit too much of experts, like the British did. As far as who's going to fill that vacuum left by Merkel, perhaps that brings us to Draghi, because we've been here for 20 years and been in Piemonte here for seven years. And whenever I speak with friends or acquaintances or whomever, being Italian, it seems like the last thing they want to talk about is politics for obvious reasons. They keep it quite close to the best, and it's always quite local and personal, as it is everywhere. I believe there is some optimism about Draghi. Yeah, if you've actually seen Draghi do any actual speeches, you immediately notice that he has no idea how to speak. He's, uh, he is not a professional politician. He is not a kind of guy who's comfortable in front of a camera or a microphone. 
but he is a breathtakingly competent economist and he has serious authority in Italy and he is hurting his grand coalition, which is everybody except for Italian Italia, to basically do two things. One is manage their way through COVID and two is uh, begin the economic recovery and do the reforms that Italy has always shied away from and now is using the COVID recovery as an excuse to get done. When Draghi speaks about economic recovery, he speaks with authority, and he has impeccable European credentials, which for the Italians is really a, a change. Uh, they're not used to being taken as seriously as they are now on the European and world stages. But, you know, Draghi, as a president of the ECB and responsible for the 2008 financial crisis recovery, uh, has real clout, uh, even in America and other places. He has a good chance of taking over as one of, if not the leading uh, politician in Europe. Uh, the European mantle is kind of hard to uh, stand up to. Merkel is in question leader of Europe for all this time. Now it's either going to be Macron or, or Draghi. And Draghi is more respected than Macron, although Macron is also very competent. Um, and the others, you know, all the others are going to get together, make sure that whoever is the leader isn't going to be too much uh, out in front and uh, they'll bring him back and force him to do coalition stuff. But Draghi's good at that and so is Macron. And I could see Draghi and Macron doing well together. You know? Oh, yeah, they certainly will. They're both very competent economists. Macron was a, a, an investment banker before becoming a politician and uh, he has impeccable economic mm -hmm. credentials. And Draghi, of course, is one of the authorities on economics. And uh, between them, they know how to goose their economies. Both Macron and Draghi are doing the things long overdue that are necessary to make their uh, respective economies more competitive in the world. So I know, I'm not sure if it's due to the COVID relief program or to Draghi, but I do notice that over the period of the last six months, we've seen a lot of road repair, a lot of new roads being replaced. I mean, the Autostrada is one thing because... We're on that quite often, and, and that's paid for. But as far as the local roads, I'm seeing a lot of, a lot of construction. Yeah, the uh, European Union has approved the COVID recovery plan, and a lot of it is to be rebuild infrastructure. They're also doing um, a lot of work on the network infrastructure and uh, uh, internet uh, availability, which in Italy is quite poor compared to its competitors. They have a lot of roads. Italian roads are tricky to maintain because the weather is uh, quite severe. You know, they have a lot of hills and mountains and, and bridges and, and tunnels and things that are more expensive to maintain than other countries have, perhaps. You know, Switzerland has the same issues, but Switzerland has far fewer roads because it's much smaller. You know, now they're making a serious effort to do the construction. Italy is a very uh, construction-oriented country. They do a lot of construction overseas, and they have a lot of people who know how to build roads. And now they're finally actually applying all those skills to their own roads, and we are seeing some of those benefits now. Yeah, when we lived in Rome, we there were all those long, straight roads. In here in Piemonte, they're all they're all curves. So listen, um, let's uh, let's move on to Hungary because Orban and the gay issue been in the news as of late, and it also flows into uh, the EU, EU politics, and sovereignty. So how has the EU dealt with, with Orban? 
Well, it's difficult to deal with Orban because Orban is popularly elected in Hungary. And as everyone knows, especially if you listen to our podcast, member states in the EU are sovereign, which means that the EU doesn't have a lot of levers to interfere in local domestic politics. However, Orban has seriously pissed off the other member states because he's taking a stance that is anti-LGBTQ and, you know, that's not viewed very well by other member states in the European Union. So what does that mean? Orban isn't saying uh, if you're gay, it's illegal. What he's saying is you are not allowed to have gay education before you are an adult. In other words, he doesn't want the kids to learn all about being gay. Now, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's illegal to be gay or whatever, but it is discriminatory, and this is not viewed as acceptable by most of the other Europeans. So what's the deal? Well, the deal is that Orban can get his parliament, which is, he has over 50% of the majority of the parliament uh, with him, he can get his parliament to pass laws that would be considered discriminatory by the rest of the Europeans. The Europeans can't actually stop him from doing that because that is a national competence. However, they do not want him to receive the kind of money that he gets from the European Union. So the Dutch in particular have basically said, if you don't stop him and don't give him the money from Europe, then we're not going to pay it in, right? Because at the end of the day, it's the, it's the contributing member states that actually pay the money in. And those recipient states, they have an argument, you know, on paper. But, you know, he who has the gold makes the rules. So what they've done is they've given the European Union some new powers to withhold the normal payments into places like Hungary if they view that there is an, a contradiction of the rule of law, which is a kind of a gray area. So this is being tested right now, and the European Union are basically telling uh, Orban, if you don't uh, modify your stance on this stuff, uh, you won't get the money. And we have this new power, which has been granted to us by the council to prevent that from happening. I don't know how it's going to end up. At least they have a lever to to combat that, because Orban doesn't seem to be a, he seems to be a bit of a bad actor. So uh, listen, let's move on to COVID. You know, next December would mean that we're entering the third year of this pandemic. And I also heard on uh, Michael Moore's podcast, I heard this guy, his name is Dr. Peter Hotez, and he's got something called the People's Vaccine, and it's called Corbivax, C-O-R-B-E-V-A-X. I'm not sure what what different countries will call it, but they haven't taken ownership of it yet. But he's really quite frustrated, you know, because we listened to Biden promise 200 million plus doses. And of course, Europe is already, the EU has already donated tens of millions of doses. It's it's just, it's rather alarming, isn't it? Uh, He was breaking down the numbers. You've got a billion people in sub-Saharan Africa. You've got about 650 million people in Latin America and another half billion people in some of those poorest parts of Southeast Asia. So, you know, we're, we're looking, we're adding up these numbers to two to three billion. So who's, who's going to step up? I mean, we need six billion doses to put in those arms. Uh, so it looks like this uh, Dr. Peter Hortez has developed this vaccine. It's about a buck, a buck and a half, dollar fifty a dose. 
he needs to find a big vaccine producer, apparently. So, you know, we have this $100 trillion economy, and uh, someone's not keeping their eye on the ball. What are we doing? Well, you know, everybody's running around saying things like that. AstraZeneca has a very similar story. They said, we're doing it at cost. And uh, we've never built a vaccine before. And then it turns out that it's not so easy to make vaccines. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of moving parts. It's not, it's not something that you do out of a lab. So for him to say, I've got something that costs a buck, is a little premature if he doesn't have anybody actually manufacturing it. Because how much does it cost to make? Uh, how many factories do you need? How, you know, what, what is the real cost? Because nothing is free. So what does it mean? It's obvious that you know, everybody needs to work together to solve both climate change and the pandemic. That's why it's called a pandemic, is because it affects everybody, and no one's going to be safe until everybody's safe. Now, you know, the U.S. government spends, I don't even know how much money on all sorts of things. And to fund it, they print dollars in the Federal Reserve. So the cost of a vaccine, if it's done by governments, is kind of irrelevant because you you just print money. And instead of spending it on bombs or military, you could spend it on vaccines and you could ship them down to South America and so forth. Now, some countries, notably Italy, have gotten their military involved in vaccine distribution because the military are very good at logistics, which means getting stuff to where it's needed quickly and efficiently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, usually you have to do that for troops to have bullets and equipment and stuff delivered to the war front, right? But you could just as easily use those skills to deliver vaccines to South America and Africa and all these other places. Now, we still, you know, realistically, Europe isn't going to send everyone down to Africa and South America until Europe has gotten the vaccines in their own arms. Uh, But when they have completed, you know, more of that or 80% of that, then they're going to turn their attention more to getting it done elsewhere. And Europe right now is certainly providing many, many vaccines through COVAX and other uh, schemes run by the WHO. The WHO has been strengthened. Thank God Donald Trump has been defeated because America was pulling the WHO's funding before Biden got back in. And, you know, we're, we're doing our best. I don't believe that uh, it's adequate at the moment. So what are our numbers here in Italy and France and Germany? How are we doing? Yeah, so Italy has vaccinated, fully vaccinated over half of their people this week. Um, so they're, they're, they're accelerating Italy's vaccination numbers as a percentage of their population is the highest in Europe, followed by Germany, followed by France. They've overtaken the daily vaccination rates that were so famous in the UK. And uh, they're, they're, they're going ahead. They're vaccinating over half a million people a day in Italy. It's quite an easy process. I got, I'm, I'm double vaxxed. You're double vaxxed. I think I finished yeah, up last we're month. Yeah, pretty double vaxxed. And, and also, Italy is doing the same thing France is doing, which is a good idea, although the French had to pull back on it a little bit, which is we have a thing called the EU Green Pass, uh, which is a digital certificate that goes on your iPhone. And France is requiring it to go to the grocery store, to go to places where there's lots of people. You're going to need to have that pass. And Italy is going to follow suit. Everybody in Italy has a cell phone. And everybody in Italy, over 80%, believe that there's no problem with actually getting your vaccine certificate and flashing it at people as needed. 
Um, people in other places who are uninformed are saying it's difficult for people to validate those certificates, but there's actually an iPhone app and an Android app that you just point and click at the certificate and it'll tell you whether it's valid or not. So it's not hard for stores and others to check that people have been vaccinated to go in there. And everybody in these countries is vaccinated for free. So, you know, there's no reason why you can't go. And both Italy and France believe by, by being more stringent about where you can go and who you can see, more people will say, oh, hell with it, I'm going to get vaccinated now and make the appointments. The French appointments more than doubled the day they announced the policy. And uh, it's good. I mean, we, we do want more people to be vaccinated. Um, so and I don't know who thinks it's still. I mean, I'm sure there are some people that still think it's a hoax and uh, you can get into that. But it is killing people. I saw on Twitter yesterday there was a, a major backlash against Eric Clapton because he said he would never play in a venue that forced the public to be vaccinated in order to listen to him. And not that Twitter reflects reality, but uh, there was quite a backlash on Twitter. So I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, you know, there's um, different people are getting excited about different aspects. Bocelli got uh, slammed a little bit because he said he didn't know what the fuss was about. And, you know, so Bocelli was ignorant. Um, what can you do? But some people are all about vaccinations. Some people are against it. It is true that there have been some cases of um, uh, people getting vaccinated and being worse off than if they hadn't been vaccinated. Some people have died from taking the vaccine. But we're talking about tens, hundreds, maybe thousands. And so far, millions of people have been vaccinated. And having been vaccinated, they have saved millions of lives worldwide. So, you know, yes, there's risk to everything. There's risk to crossing the street. People are forced to wear seatbelts in cars. Uh, and I view that as being more of a, you know, infringement of my liberty than vaccinations because you get vaccinated to protect other people. Whereas if you're wearing a seatbelt, you're just protecting yourself. So, you know, at the end of the day, you shouldn't go around and spread diseases that kill other people if there's a simple way for you to avoid doing that through vaccination or testing. Uh, the Italians are not requiring vaccination. They said you can get tested to get the certificate, but then you have to get tested every three days. As do the French. As do the French, yeah. I mean, they're not saying if you're really, really terrified of the vaccine, you can get away with going to places without it. But and of course, where it's a complete mess. It's And it's complete. <laughs> it's England. I mean, you remember how they were, they were just boasting at the beginning, and they've just botched it all the way through. We had forecasted this many, many months ago. This would be a tortoise and hare scenario that would play out, and it did. It's it's rather terrifying, those English. I mean, their incompetency is, is, yeah, uh, is it's, a, it's, it's unnerving. It's, it is unnerving. Uh, I have to support you there. I mean, I, I get into discussions with people, and the numbers are just ridiculous. At, at the moment... They just don't know what they're doing. They do, exactly. And the messaging is absolutely inconsistent. So what they're doing is they're, they're, getting, they're getting COVID is what they're doing. Uh, they had something like, uh, I think it was 50,000 new cases. 51,000 new cases is the latest number. That's a daily number. Uh, the Italian number the same day was 2,000. So we're like, okay, so we have 2,000. You've got 25 times more than we do. But you guys have basically removed the wearing masks in crowded places mandate. You've got all those people in Wembley Stadium. I think, Francis, this is what's interesting about this is this is also fallout from Brexit. 
Because what we're seeing from the outside, and you can often only see it from the outside looking in. As an American, I can see the distance creates objectivity. And as, as, a, as a Europhile looking at England, it's fascinating to watch how much more xenophobic, how much more inward looking they have become, and how they're just built, they're very slowly building those virtual walls around themselves. Yeah, it's not slow at all. It's uh, it's quite rapid. They're busy ensuring that everybody has to quarantine for 10 or 14 days coming in from Europe, which, as we just said, has 25 times less COVID than they do. I mean, it's it's like locking the door uh, and you're in the you're in the room with the monsters, right? Uh, well, anyway, it's too e- it's too easy to bash the English. It's actually quite boring and tedious these days. But anyway, it's, it's unfortunate because the reason the sole reason for my bringing it up is that what their inconsistent messaging and confusing approach what it's doing is it's helping to create these variants that are spreading and impacting everyone else. I mean, we are literally all in this together. So every day I wake up, you know, I just want to hear good news from some country, no matter who, who it is. I, I just want to hear good news that someone's doing better, that something is moving us forward out of this as we enter into the third year this winter, which is just alarming. So anyway, where there's a, <laughs> there's so many alarming things to talk about. So I think let's move on to climate change. And of course, you know, we need to address this for a couple of minutes because I'm I'm from California, but I grew up in Seattle and uh, Seattle, Portland experienced just extraordinary heat last month. As we all know, Germany and and Belgium and the Netherlands, in particular Germany, the floods have just been absolutely devastating and our our hearts go out to those people there. But for the grace of God, go I. Um, It's just, it's so sad anyway. So we're seeing these um, here in Piemonte, in case you're interested, the weather report, knock on wood, we're, we're having a, it's hot. Like last year, last summer, we're having a relatively, you know, around 90, 95 degrees, uh, 30, 32 degrees. That's kind of normal this time of year. Um, nothing dramatic, but uh, we're seeing all of these flash floods. And I know that uh, we had some in-laws in the south of France near Cannes uh, a couple of years ago. They experienced flash floods, I think, uh, in a town near Cannes. Like I said, they had a, about 16 deaths. And uh, we had family that were, you know, in, in wading around in water, one, one and a half meter high. Um, anyway, so we're, we're just seeing this more and more often. So, Francis, what can you say about as far as what Europe is trying to do, how they're dealing with, with, uh, with this climate well, issue? Well, the Germans are very sensitive uh, to climate change anyway. Uh, the Green Party has tremendous strength in Germany. The flash floods were quite eye-opening and shocking. Um, the normal anti-flood measures completely failed in Germany. I read somewhere that uh, the idea was that the, the floods were supposed to handle two meters of increased uh, capacity and give an hour's notice for people to evacuate. And they saw the waters in uh, our Weiler go up eight meters in five minutes. It just was really rapid, totally inadequate defenses. Uh, and it caused a lot of damage. So that's terrible that uh, these things happen. Interestingly, you know, you expect, uh, you read all about the climate change effect on the coastlines, but all of this stuff was inside, you know, inside the country. It's not, not on the coast at all. It's in the rivers. Uh, and it was, uh, it was quite uh, dramatic. Um, so also, another interesting point was 
the minute this happened, the Germans started sending care packages and trying to help the affected areas. Uh, and within days, they have like the most organized and efficient way of uh, you know handling it and cleaning up and making everything happen. And people express surprise about this. Uh, nothing could be less surprising than the Germans being organized. Germans are the most organized people on the planet. And I'm sure whatever the disaster is that they're going to rise to the challenge. But a lot of people are asking the questions, why did this happen? We know climate change, we've been talking about it for years, but what can we concretely do now to prevent this kind of shit happening again? And that is uh, um, an open debate. It's going to dramatically affect the chancellorship elections because it's going to be the one topic they talk about going into those elections, which are coming up in September. So I doubt that the talk is going to die down by then. And that may give the Greens a bit of a boost. The downside for the Greens is that although they are very concerned about it, they don't have any policies that will actually help prevent it. So that's really what it's all going to be about in the German elections. I think the one thing I didn't mention, if I have noticed something, the last two years we have been experiencing rather dramatic summer thunderstorms. And included in those thunderstorms is that hail. So we last year we had we had golf balls coming down. It, it just lasts for about 10 minutes most, 10, 15 minutes, and then it's over. And then, of course, we had one about two weeks ago. Uh, not quite the size of golf balls, but there you go. So I think it's time we wrap up. And I hope you don't mind the sound quality. We're on, we're on summertime, relaxed podcast mode, whatever that means. I think it just means it's hot. But uh, we covered that. We covered climate change and European politics. Hope you enjoyed our little chat. And please check out my website at baileyalexander.com, where I have lots of little films, lovely photos of Europe, small vignettes, little blessés. I think you'll enjoy them. And I notice I've sold uh, more audio sales of my book, uh, thank you very much, whomever is out there buying those. My book is called A European Odyssey, How a Boxer's Daughter Found Grace, which kind of reads like a detective novel, as some reviewers have said. So uh, please pick that up in uh, paperback form, audio, any kind of form, everything on Amazon, all over the place. So listen, thanks so much. Chivitiamo, we'll talk to you soon. Arrivederci.